This is the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on market scale. Building your brand is not around your product, so your team and your players, but you build your brand around truly this experience and this community. And we aren't in the baseball business. We are in the entertainment business, the experience business, and most importantly, the people business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sports and Entertainment Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And wow, we just came off of one of the biggest sporting events in the nation, and I'd say worldwide, but I think that goes to the Olympics and the World Cup. Uh, Nationwide, though, gotta give it to the Super Bowl always. And I feel like we've peaked with sports for the year, right? Sports end after the Super Bowl? No more sports. No, just kidding. But obviously, we can't underestimate the power of the Super Bowl or understate the power of the Super Bowl because the sports and entertainment industry feels its effects for months, even years afterwards, and really sets a trend for how to approach the next one. So, what Super Bowl-related content are we exploring today while we're still on this high of the Super Bowl? Well, I'm glad you asked, imaginary guest. We're going to be exploring three topics. We're going to be looking at the cost benefits for a city to host a Super Bowl, the impact of low Super Bowl ratings on networks, and we're going to be chatting the SpongeBob SquarePants snub at the halftime show and how it prompted the Dallas Stars to cash in on the hype, but authentically. So let's dive into our first of the three with MarketScale host Elmer Guardado, who gets insight from a University of Chicago economics professor who doesn't see a lot of value in a city bidding on a big once-a-year sporting event. Let's hear why. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado, and thanks for joining us on this feature. Every city seems to dream and hope for the chance at hosting the Super Bowl or the Olympics. But is it ever an economic win? What are the economic benefits and detriments? Does one outweigh the other? To help us get to the bottom of it, we're joined by Alan Sanderson from the University of Chicago Department of Economics. He's going to break down why he thinks it's almost never beneficial for a host city to host and explain some of the actual economics that aren't being considered. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Mm -hmm. Let's just get started with generally, why do you think this isn't a good idea? Well, that's right. The the cities, uh, in some ways, lobby, campaign, put forth proposals to, to host one of these big ticket events. But that doesn't mean everybody in the city does. There are there are forces, again, that call all of the special interests. Uh, there may be some people who could benefit more. Maybe it's the restaurant in, in terms of the Super Bowl, maybe the hotel industry or the restaurant industry that are made better off. Maybe some other people are made worse off because of congestion and other kind of hassles. So not everybody benefits. Some will benefit, some will will lose. And so it's the sort of on average question of, you know, on average, are these a good thing or are these not a good thing? I think the evidence tends to be that, yes, hosting one of these is a good thing. It's just very small, okay, far smaller than than the sponsoring organization, whether it's the NFL or the IOC, uh, might claim a benefit for a city. What about from like a local state government standpoint? Are they always seeing it as a win since it, you know, I imagine this increases tourism and adds, you know, a nice spotlight to the city? 
Well, there is sort of ex ante and ex post. I mean, uh, I might argue, in fact, Atlanta's had two Super Bowls in the last couple of decades. I I don't think in either experience, both the sort of unfortunate kind of social things that were going on in the previous one, and then this one just being a really boring game, uh, I don't think it did a whole lot for Atlanta's image. Uh, I would say, and I regard... Rio de Janeiro is one of the most beautiful cities I've ever seen, but I think it'd be pretty hard to argue that the 2016 games were going to give a a big boost uh, to Rio's economy or or, or tourism. Um, So, yeah, in some ways, you you pay your money, you take your chances. Things may go well, things may not go well. Um, Well, I think think an overarching issue here is if I take something, say the NFL, which uh, I could both say that because of the recent Super Bowl, uh, the NFL is usually going to publish or not publish, but they're going to put out some kind of a summary statement. And there's a geo study just said this. We commissioned a study and just said that the Super Bowl is going to be worth, and I'm making this up in part, but, uh, you know, $500 million to Atlanta or something or, or to New Orleans. I think one, a skeptic has to, uh, first of all, once you're paying a commissioned report, you pretty much know what the answer is going to be. As the old expression is, you don't ever ask a barber if you need a haircut. Uh, you know what the answer is. But I have to ask, sort of step back and say, let's suppose that the Super Bowl were really worth $500 million to Atlanta. Why on earth would the NFL leave $500 million on the table? If they're going to produce that benefit, shouldn't they be able to capture that benefit? And I think the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Okay, uh, they can. They can. They can. Tease that, and first of all, it's not 500 million because it's going to be much smaller. But uh, they can tease it out, and and I've seen some of the contracts that the NFL has with host cities, and they're pretty brutal in terms of what the NFL gets for free, uh, doesn't have to pay for it all, and other other benefits that it gets back. So um, yeah, there you know there, there's you know the NFL may be a great organization, but it's not a 501c3 charity, uh, and Certainly on other fronts, whether it's negotiating television contracts or whatever, uh, the NFL is pretty darn good at extracting most of the money that's on the table. And I assume that the same thing is true with, with the host cities. I've often said that if you take one of these commissioned reports, uh, take the number that they give you, the bottom line figure of the benefit, then move the decimal point one to the left, you're probably pretty close. If the NFL says it was worth $500 million to Atlanta, it was probably worth $50 million. Right. So where do you think this kind of false equivalency is, is coming from? Why do you think generally, I think people outside of you know the, the research area you're in, it seem to assume that this is going to be a beneficial thing. Is it just kind of what I said, the fact that it is putting at the very least the city on a spotlight or... Yeah, no, I, I think it's that. And again, there, and I'm not knocking it. Uh, and wearing a particular hat, the NFL and, and Atlanta are in the advertising business. <laughs> they're, they're trying to get you to, to buy something or buy into something. And that's no different than any of the other commercials that are that are run on, on television or in newspapers. It's advertising. A lot of the money that gets spent in the Atlanta area I think the other reason, and again, whether it could be you know, you know Glendale, Arizona, or it could be New Orleans, or it could be Atlanta or Los Angeles, um, a lot of it's just kind of bad math. You know, for example, suppose an Atlanta hotel room rents for 
$200. If I say, how much of that money normally, how much money stays in the city of that $200? Well, maybe half of the dozen hundred stays in the city because they're paying utilities, they're paying their personnel in the hotel, they're paying taxes, they're paying other things. The $100 goes to wherever the hotel the other hundred goes to wherever the hotel um, headquarters are, whether it's Marriott or Sheraton, whatever. Leaves the city immediately. The credit card may get swiped in Atlanta uh, through the machine, but uh, most of the money leaves the city. Then they say, well, the Super Bowl is coming along. Let's double hotel rates. And so they raise it to $400. And that $400 then gets in these studies sort of put into it. But in fact, if the hotel rate doubles from 200 to 400 $300 would leave the city. That The original 100 is the only thing that saves in the city. Uh, so that kind of account. It also assumes that local people are spending money on game-related activity. But that means if there were no game, they would just be not having dinner and sitting home in the basement in the dark. And that, that's just not true. The money would have been spent uh, somewhere else in the city anyway. Yeah, no, I think that hotel example is is a perfect example, right? Because it, it articulates that main, I think, uh Maybe not problem, but I think the main issue with thinking it's going to be an immediate win-win is that, yeah, the money isn't necessarily staying in the city it's being spent in. So I think that's that's an interesting thing that a lot of people aren't thinking about. And, and while we're talking about these, these myths, you know, what are some hidden costs or some of the biggest problems that might come with hosting these that uh, the average person might not even, you know, know exists? Yeah, well, there are, in fact, uh, you know, congestion part uh, costs. <laughs> Some people are made worse off. Uh, you know, it's traffic congestion, it's, it's trash, it's, it's other kind of things, or, or the police department is spending time on these game-related activities that they're not trying to monitor, you know, crime or, or other things uh, in, in the area. So there, there are those kind of, you know, costs associated with it. Also, let me, the biggest expenditure, if I wanted to say, if I took just any NFL team and say, where do its revenue, where are its revenues coming from? Uh, the revenues that an NFL team has are, you know, probably 80% of it is television. Um, and that's also true in terms. So if I say, what's the big revenue source for the Super Bowl? It's television. Uh, but those revenues, those are not fannies in the seats uh, in Atlanta. It's television. And those television revenues, and in case of the Super Bowl, also the fannies in the seats, most of those revenues are just divided by 32, and that every team in the NFL gets a cut. Uh, so even other money that might have been generated in Atlanta only one thirty-second of it is going to stay in Atlanta, and that's only by accident because they happen to have an NFL team there. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think about consider that part of it, right? But yeah. that's a that's a massive part of it. Yeah, no, and, and so the, the the actual money that's generated and stays in Atlanta, or again Glendale, or wherever city you want to pick, uh, it, it is pretty small. One of my last questions for you, Alan, is, you know, do you think there's anywhere specifically that cities might be? you know, putting unnecessary dollars into because of the hosting process? I think this is more likely to occur, say, with the Olympics. Uh, for example, with the Super Bowl, Atlanta didn't build a new stadium, you know, to have the Super Bowl. Uh, or Kansas City didn't build a new stadium to have the Super Bowl. It was being able to use existing facilities. Where you get into trouble on the Olympics is that if the IOC, International Olympic Committee, came to a city and said, how would you like to host the Olympics? And by the way, it would just, you could just use your existing facilities then it probably makes sense for the city. But once it says you have to build a 90,000-seat stadium and you've got to build an Olympic village, you've got to build big media centers, uh, there, you're just, you know, there's no way you're going to come out of that 
in the black because you're just basically spending a whole lot of money for a three-week party. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this this reminds me a lot of the, the, the conundrum you have with retail or any other industry, right, where at a certain point you're not actually paying for the physical product you're getting you're getting whatever the brand stands for or whatever the 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 mm-hmm. you know the benefit here is being like hey we're talking about brazil and and or we're talking about atlanta and we otherwise might not have been but when we're talking about money right it's not always you know the the benefit those kind of benefits aren't outweighing the physical dollars being spent yeah no that's it. You're absolutely right. So my last question for you is, you know, is there any, even something that might not exist quite yet, but any way to solve this kind of problem, right? Because it seems like, and who knows if we could even call it a problem, right? Because mm-hmm. I doubt the NFL is having trouble finding places that want to host the, the Super Bowl. But yeah. Yeah. is there is there any, you know, ideal future for this? Well, if I break a minute, let, let's... Let's take the Olympics separate. I, I, I've written some sort of short op-ed type pieces to argue it. We may have come to the end, pretty much the end of the Olympics. Uh, the IOC model really depends on, you know, six to ten cities wanting to host the Olympics. And the way you get to host the Olympics is I'm willing to spend more money than you are uh, in terms of cities bidding against each other. And at that point, you're bound to lose. But what they've run into is that uh, fewer and fewer people, uh, fewer and fewer countries or cities want to host this because they largely lose. You're going to lose money. It's just how much are you going to lose? Um, and I, I was involved in, in for the, uh, as part of the team for the mayor of Boston and, and um, the governor of Massachusetts in Boston's 2024 bid for the Olympics. And after we submitted our report, basically Boston withdrew its bid. Um, but nobody else in the end for the 2024 games, there were only two bidders, uh, ended up being two bidders, Los Angeles and Paris. And both cities made it quite clear that if we don't win, we're never going to bid again. Uh, and so they gave Paris the 2024 games and Los Angeles the 2028 games. But the, the IOC can't continue to, to play this kind of game and make any money at it uh, if they can't get more cities to bid. Uh, it's conceivable that, you know, something is, you know, we used to have world fairs, we used to have lots of things, uh, but, you know, times change, technologies change, and, and you might see a, a much smaller version where maybe track events are held in this country and swimming events and soccer events and everything around in, in different cities. Then if you move back to just kind of a big ticket item like the Super Bowl, you know, for example, um, the NBA uh, or Major League Baseball, the World Series or the NBA championships are played in, on the you know, in the in the venue for for the the teams that are playing, which not not true and uh, for football for, for the most part. So if there was an unless there was an accident like the the Falcons being in the in the Super Bowl this year, you might get the same thing. It could still happen with the NFL that a city's just not willing to spend that amount of money. It, it may well be uh, maybe a northern city could bid because in early February not a whole lot of people tra- uh, you know moved or take the weekend or the week and and go to Detroit or go to Minneapolis or some cold northern city. You're certainly not going to see much in the way of uh, any out any further outdoor. Uh, Super Bowls, so it'd have to be a dome city. Uh, but these would be places where normally, say in Detroit and or Minneapolis in, in January or February, the hotel occupancy rate is way down. Where a city like New Orleans, the hotel occupancy rate is probably 100%. Uh, New Orleans is going to have far less interest in hosting a Super Bowl because 
they have people who are going to rent their hotels and right. go to their restaurants. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these alternatives just sound like uh, kind of no-brainers, right? But then you do lose that appeal that I think, you know, you and I are able to see through. But there is that, you know, the, the thing we're talking about, that brand recognition and that, that, that quote-unquote mm-hmm. honor, right, of hosting these events. Yeah. And, and I think that's mm-hmm. why, like, with baseball, where you do have a series that it makes sense that they're switching back and forth between the different home stadiums, you, you don't have that problem, right? And and it, right. It, it'll be interesting. I think the specifically what you said about the Olympics may be uh, spreading out uh, their events in different locations, right? It's not as grand. You don't have that big yeah. celebration, but it makes a lot more sense. So uh, it'll, yeah. it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. And uh, Alan, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for, for being on today. Hopefully that insight from Alan Sanderson puts a new perspective for city governments looking to bid on hosting that next big sporting event might not always be as economically feasible or beneficial as it might seem. So our next piece is from our very own market scale host, Scott Sidway. And Scott is an avid sports aficionado and a North Texas radio personality, so he stays on top of both the sports world and the broadcast world. And nothing screams both of those like the world of ratings. After a decade-low showing, lowest rating since 2009 for the Super Bowl, Scott wanted to get a feel for how these low ratings actually affect the broadcasting networks who host the games and who host the Super Bowl. So let's see what he found out. Here's Scott with this insight. All right, look, so we all know that the Super Bowl is always one of the most watched program. In fact, it is the most watched program of the year every year when it comes to TV ratings. It's always got over 100 million viewers across different platforms, uh, people tuning in across the world to watch the Super Bowl. It's, It's always been that way. It's been that way for quite a long time. But the story today is the fact that the ratings for this year's Super Bowl, Super Bowl 53 between the New England Patriots and the Los Angeles Rams, is down more than 5% from last year, and it's its lowest turnout since 2008, 11 years. Now, a lot of people are pointing to different factors here, and we can dissect every one of these factors, but the reason we're gonna talk about this is because should broadcast networks and should the NFL be concerned? Now, I'm gonna sum this up in one word, no. And here's why. So we gotta dive into these factors And we're going to look at the USA Today uh, and other research done on these Super Bowls and conference championship games and other NFL games and look at the fact that the NFL is still pulling millions of people in viewership, millions of dollars in revenue. So even though it's a 5% drop on the Super Bowl this year, the conference championship games just two weeks ago were some of the highest rated conference championship games in the history of the NFL. We're talking 27.5 household rating, which is up 27% from last year. I mean, we're talking 54.9 million viewers watched the conference championship games, and that's teams like Kansas City and New England and New Orleans and L.A. I mean, New Orleans, Kansas City, they aren't huge markets. People are watching those games because they were excited about the storylines and they were excited to see the Super Bowl. So football fatigue isn't there. It's not people losing 
interest in football as to why these ratings could be doing going down. Let's look at some other factors. Let's look at the politics surrounding the NFL and the halftime show. Now, I'm not going to dive into political opinions and what should have been done, what should have been said, who should have performed, but the bottom line is it was a huge conversation going into this year's halftime show whether or not politics would be involved. Look, the Colin Kaepernick story is no secret. We know what Colin Kaepernick did. He took a knee during the National Anthem several years ago. It sparked a lot of outrage. A lot of uh, people on the right side of the political aisle, including a lot of veterans, saw it as disrespectful. And while Colin Kaepernick and many others saw it as just a peaceful protest against police brutality. It caused some division amongst the NFL and even took a toll on some advertisers having to take political stands with the NFL. I mean, Nike signed Colin Kaepernick even though he was Basically, for lack of a better term, blacklisted from the NFL and still doesn't have a job. How does that relate to the halftime show? Well, a lot of artists declined to participate in the halftime show because of the way the NFL has handled the Colin Kaepernick situation. So you end up with Maroon 5 and a lot of social media outrage about how it was a bland show. It wasn't very exciting, how they didn't sound very good. Now, that's those aren't my opinions. That's just in general what you've been seeing. So that played a factor into the Super Bowl too, and then the low ratings. A third thing we've got to look at. The game, in general, was relatively boring. Now, I enjoyed it. I thought a defensive showdown, a game that ended 13-3, to right? Uh, I like that kind of game because it was a defensive chess match, chess match. But to the casual viewer, and a lot of people, again, on social media, a lot of people were just flat-out bored with this game and tuning out because you didn't have a touchdown scored in the first three quarters. That's the first time that's ever happened in a Super Bowl. So a lot of people were just tuning out, especially casual fans who may have just been watching for the sheer uh, pomp and circumstance of watching the Super Bowl. They were out here watching for the commercials and watching just for an entertaining game, and by that point, it wasn't entertaining. You've had three quarters of football where six points have been scored, and the commercials have been okay. The halftime show was, you know, according to social media, not very good. So, yeah, people are going to start tuning out. And there's one other factor we've got to talk about here, which to me is the most hilarious factor of all, and it's the city of New Orleans. So although the Super Bowl was down... 5% in ratings, you know, around 100 million people watching it, actually less than 100 million when you consider that the $100.7 million or a viewership number that CBS put out, that includes the network, CBS Interactive, NFL Digital Properties, Verizon Media Properties, ESPN Deportes, etc. So it really was less than 100 million people watching the game on CBS itself. But the thing we've got to look out, and this cracks me up, it's that the city of New Orleans played a huge role in this drop in numbers, and it's because of what happened in the NFC Championship game. Now, we're not going to dive too much into it, but I will say there was a controversial call at the end of that game where the Saints didn't get a pass interference called, where essentially they would have sealed the game had that play been called, that pass interference been called. And instead, the game goes to overtime, the Rams end up winning, and the city of New Orleans is mad. You've got attorneys wanting to sue the NFL for jipping them and screwing them out of the game. You've got fans boycotting. You've got the coach wearing a shirt that says Roger Goodell is a troll, essentially. I mean, it was outrage for days. And even we're two weeks past that game now, three weeks past that game almost. And it's still outrage. You're still hearing about it. But if you look at the numbers in New Orleans, so last year at the Super Bowl, the the ratings for um, rating numbers are very strange to to you know assess here, but the ratings for the Super Bowl and just in the New Orleans market, according to WWL TV, was a fifty two point four. 
This year for Super Bowl 53, just one year later, this past Sunday, the ratings were a 26.1. That is less than half, more than 50% of a drop between people who watched the Super Bowl last year, which New Orleans wasn't in, by the way. They lost in the second round of the playoffs on a crazy Hail Mary play, versus this year when they get essentially what they would say is screwed out of a chance to play in the Super Bowl. So the fact that half of New Orleans who watched the Super Bowl last year didn't watch it this year, that's going to play a huge part in the drop in the overall numbers for the Super Bowl and how many people watched it. I mean, if you saw the social media pictures of people on the streets of New Orleans wearing their black and gold and their Saints jerseys and everything, they were partying in the streets, just having a good old time not watching the Super Bowl. I mean, it was hilarious. Go look it up if you haven't seen it. But the bottom line here is that I don't think this is something networks have to be worried about. Broadcast network, you've CBS, Fox, uh, NBC, who are there? Those two networks are going to have the next couple of Super Bowls because of the rotation. I don't think they're looking at this Super Bowl and saying, "Oh boy, what do we have to do different to make sure that we get better numbers?" I think when you look at the grand scheme of everything, and add it to the fact that the NFL is still king and that millions of people are still coming out and watching the games. The NFL is still going to pull viewers. The networks are still going to profit and the money is going to keep flowing in. It's going to happen. The NFL is king. The Super Bowl is king. And I can all but guarantee you that by the end of 2019, when you look at the top 10 list, oh, the top 10 gross, biggest grossing movies, the, you know, the top 10 best-selling albums... Number one on the most watched TV shows of the year is going to be Super Bowl 53 between the New England Patriots and Los Angeles Rams. And somewhere in the couple of numbers past that on the list is going to be the conference championship games and other NFL games. And I think we're going to forget about this very soon. Finally, we have to acknowledge the SpongeBob meme at the Super Bowl. If you weren't aware of the million-plus person petition to get a song from the original Nickelodeon cartoon on the Super Bowl halftime show, you must have not been paying much attention because it was really the highlight for a big community of people in between some, I'll say, mediocre performances, in my opinion. Though it didn't get the love it was chasing after at the bowl, the Dallas Stars, our Dallas hockey team, had a different game plan to pay homage to the yellow sponge and his late creator. All right, I have the pleasure of welcoming Jason Danby. He's the Senior Director of Brand Presentation, Production, and Promotions of the Dallas Stars on our Sports and Entertainment Podcast. And I'm chatting with Jason today about something that they pulled off at one of their recent games that is going viral and for good reason. Jason, how you doing? Doing pretty well, a little bit under the weather, but certainly happy to join you, Daniel. Yeah, well, hopefully we get some sweet victory out of this podcast. <laughs> All right, so I think we should just jump right into it uh, there's there was a big push for the super bowl to play that iconic spongebob song and for our listeners who don't know spongebob is an animated show featuring a talking sponge that's probably pretty common knowledge but there's one episode and it's an iconic episode called band geeks in this iconic episode spongebob and co go to the super bowl basically and they perform at a halftime show and they play a rockin song called sweet victory it is 
iconic. And there was a big push this year for, hey, Maroon 5, you should play this song at the Super Bowl. Did they play the song? Not really. They sort of teased into Travis Scott, the rapper who performed at the Super Bowl, with a scene from that episode. So they gave him a shout out, but we didn't get the full Sweet Victory experience. The Dallas Stars, though, at one of their recent games, did give us the full Sweet Victory experience. So Jason... I want to just hear it from you. Walk me through that process of, I'm sure you were keeping up with all the hype around bringing that song to the Super Bowl. What was the decision around, okay, they didn't do it, why don't we do it? And uh, and then we'll dig into a little bit of fan interaction, how you think it was received, and really what the marketing impact of something like this could be. So give us that rundown first. Wow. Well, I guess I'll first say that, uh, you know, Stephen Hillenberg's impact on uh, entertainment is global and for good reason. Um, You know, when we saw the petition to have that uh, performed at the Super Bowl after his passing, um, after battling ALS, um, it's hard not to take a petition with over a million uh, signatures seriously from a sports entertainment side. Uh, So when I, when I noticed that, um, I thought that was comedic, yes, but also it was it was uh, it was coming from a good place. Um, uh, people wanted to pay tribute to his work, his effort, his. Uh, some people say creative genius, but um, you know, genius is really nothing but hard work. It's all hard work. So, um, so when we saw that, uh, we created a piece, um, kind of transposed our own Dallas Stars feel onto it. Um, and uh, we had that run uh, a little bit earlier in the season. We had it run at the New Year's Eve game uh, this season as kind of a hopeful addition to the momentum. Right. Uh, to perhaps have a performance at the Super Bowl, which which is kind of a long shot. You know, um, the Super Bowl is a very serious thing. You know, the performance and uh, the performers take themselves very seriously. Um, so I didn't foresee that actually happening at the Super Bowl personally. Um, but in the same way, I'd like, I, I wanted to contribute and we wanted to contribute. Um, so when February came around, uh, we had a game on the 1st of February, right before the Super Bowl on the 3rd. Uh, we rolled that video again. Uh, as the team came back for the third period, we have kind of a theatrical moment where we can bring the lights down and, uh, you know, give the fans something uniquely branded and uniquely um, I guess artistic, but you know, it's just an opportunity to to do something a little bit off brand and maybe get some attention from uh, folks who aren't um, who are maybe less in tune with hockey specifics, and we can kind of reach out and um, you know get their attention and get their interest. Uh, so we rolled that video on the first uh, of February as well as uh, the fourth, immediately after the Super Bowl. Um, and I guess the the prediction that uh, you know I, I'd I'd hate to say it, but it's it's probably easy to predict that a Super Bowl halftime show is going to be a little bit less than what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, so based on that assumption, we were ready to to roll um, that video uh, on on both dates. So. Once y'all brought it to the game, I think it was the February 4th game that went viral. There was a YouTube video that um, basically got 600,000 plus views. That was the last time I checked it. Someone recorded the whole thing. People were loving it. Um, I saw that Dallas Stars commented and responded on there. 
So I think you really got a solid fan response. Um, other than being authentic and paying homage to a great creator and kind of filling that fan need, why are decisions like this, where you really listen to what the fans want, you give it to them, why is that so important from a branding and exposure perspective? So yeah, basically just dive into the marketing wins and then maybe even some potential risks that come from listening to the fans. Well, that's a great point. And the word risk is is imperative. And it's, uh, I think, in marketing and especially in entertainment and in sports in general, um, you know, the greatest risk is to never take any risks. And, um, you know, whether that's a particular play at a, you know, a fake punt at a, at a certain moment or, or maybe in the marketing world, walking into a boardroom full of insurance salesmen and saying, you know, I've got this spectacular marketing campaign involving a a dejected uh, caveman involved in highbrow situations where he feels persecuted. Um, so there's a lot of risks involved in in marketing and sports and entertainment, which is, I guess, the confluence of what this is. Um, so when it comes to listening to the fans and kind of delivering on what certain communities have, you know, have have championed as a as an ideal or as a as a concept, it's um, I think there's two ways of looking at it. I think I think when you tell people what you want them to know, that's I guess that's that's marketing. But I guess or I guess that's more communications. And then when you listen to the fan base and you're willing to be flexible and you're willing to go out into the community, willing to understand the market, go out into the market, into different niche markets and incorporate that into your product. I think that's marketing. I think if you're willing to be flexible. Um, and not just kind of uh, have a one-way communication style as a as a company or as a uh, entertainment um, you know entity you know or as a or as a band. I mean, there's you know if someone if enough people shout Freebird, well, you should probably just at least play the intro, <laughs> right? Um, so, um, but at the same time, it's I, I I really honestly don't see this as a marketing tactic. Um, you know, f for the Dallas Stars production team, um, that production uh, has evolved into a very multiplicitous multimedia, um, you know, group. And, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of individuals in that production team that are extremely creative, extremely empathetic, energetic, effective, experienced, educated, maybe probably a few other E-words, but, um, you know, an arena is, it's not just an audience and the internet is not just an audience and the market is not just an audience. It's, it's individuals. And so if, if Steven Hillenberg is ultra passionate about his work, people are going to pick up on that and they're going to respond and they're going to appreciate it. And so in the same way, if individuals um, are passionate about, you know, an idea, um, it's going to, it's going to come across and that, and that can't be ignored. So appealing to, to individuals and individual and smaller niche markets is, is important. You have to go out into the market and to, in, in order to make new fans in order to make connections. Cause at the end of the day, we're all, we're all individuals. And, uh, you know, what's important to one person on our production team is likely important to a thousand people in an, in an arena of 18,000. So, um, that's just a recognition and I, I guess a, a philosophy on the side of the Dallas Stars production team. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's cool to see that y'all have your ear to the ground and you really respond to what your fans want. And, you know, whether you make a special moment for thousands of fans or whether you make a special moment for one fan, I think all of it is valuable, right? And that's that's the mentality that drives successful teams forward. And I also don't think it hurts that you decided to play it right after the Super Bowl when everyone was kind of dejected that they didn't get the full experience. Um, I, you know, I think staying that in tune and that responsive to your fans and what they're looking for is definitely going to play out well. So I'm excited to see what other cool things y'all do at your games. Um, I'm definitely going to have to attend if there's a promise of Sweet Victory playing because I definitely need to hear that live. And we've actually got some Dallas Stars content with your video production team coming soon, which is going to give a much deeper dive into how y'all approach each game, the process that goes into setting everything up, and really how y'all try to stand out amongst other hockey teams. So I'm excited to get that premiering soon. But in the meantime, we'll just have to listen to Sweet Victory uh, to amp ourselves up. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jason, and giving us this insight. Um, Any last words for the fans out there? I would say whether it's it's getting into your first choice of university or whether it's uh, a really freshly shaved lawn or a... um, you know, or just or just a good bowl of oatmeal. I think we're all searching for our own sweet sweet victory, and uh, I think there's a lot to look forward to with the Dallas Stars in terms of victories. And I hope that everyone experiences their own personal sweet victory in whatever capacity that is. So, um, last words for the fans, I would say, uh, go Stars! It's a great production team. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> and uh, and it should be sports entertainment should be entertaining. And thanks again. I love that. Wow, that that sweet victory spiel almost sounded like you pulled that out of your back pocket and rehearsed. That was it absolutely great. was not rehearsed. Uh, <laughs> maybe it should have been though. It could have been better. No, no. Hey, I'm now I'm hyped to mow my lawn if it means a sweet victory, right? Why not? Uh, I love it. All right, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. No worries. Well, I'm always going to fawn over any opportunity to chat SpongeBob on a B2B podcast. So please, everyone, keep petitioning for SpongeBob to show up in other industries and other places because I will be the first to to report on the impact of SpongeBob and Steven Hillenburg on Pro-AV or healthcare or who knows, even retail. But unfortunately, y'all, after those three features, that does mean we are done for today's episode of the Sports and Entertainment Podcast. I hope you enjoyed all this great insight from a variety of different perspectives, getting to hear from a University of Chicago economics professor, one of our very own market scale contributors, and finally, director of brand for the Dallas Stars. Some really, really cool stuff. And I hope this gives some insight on what the aftermath of the Super Bowl is really like on ratings, on the city that hosts it, and really on the culture around the Super Bowl hype. I think we'll see next year people are going to feel more confident about if they can rally around something that they want to see at the Super Bowl. It might come true. I mean, yeah, they didn't get the full SpongeBob experience they were hoping for, but they did get a little bite, and... That is representative that the NFL was listening to their audience. It's definitely an exciting time to be in the sports industry. Looking forward to the next episode. Hope y'all are too. 
So, if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. Thank you.